Listener Production. Everyone relax. This is not Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. This is producer Mike taking over the mic uh, to share some best of highlights of philosophy over the next couple of weeks while Will takes a well-earned break. Uh, I've got some highlights. Let's be real. Some of my favorite moments from the year that you can either relive or if you haven't heard every app, you could might be exposed to someone new in this mixed bag and you can jump back in the feed and hear the episode in full. So it's a win-win either way. Coming up in, in this episode, you'll hear the comedian talking about their previous career in a corrections facility. Also, the parent experience. A couple of dads give their perspective. But first, writer, feminist, social activist, it's Mandy Nolan talking about her start in comedy. You know how you start in that kind of university review thing? And I was in, like, <laughs> this feminist review. It wasn't funny, unfortunately. Well, some of it was funny, yeah. but it was very – it was it was, it was was a really great – I'd broken out – I was in a modelling agency uh-huh. and I remember <laughs> – and I and it was in a modelling agency at this – because where I come from, which was Joe Bjorki Peterson's area, King Roy is where I was born, and being beautiful was an achievement. So I was this tall, yeah. thin girl that suddenly, you know, I was smart, but I'd made it to the modelling agency. Yeah, you were beautiful. You didn't need anything I else. didn't need anything. It's like being a prime breeder. Yeah. It was like, she is good. She is we good We don't need go. triple threats or double threats. Yeah, You're and a threat. We it, need a single threat. Exactly. That's all we want. And then I went to, and being at university, and this is the problem with educating attractive women, is that I, <laughs> I realised, I remember... Um, understanding, like reading my first feminist text and understanding that everything I'd perceived about the world and myself was a fucking crock of shit. It wasn't, it wasn't who I was. And then suddenly I went, why am I walking in a bikini up and down this long thing? I mean, I'd been standing in a supermarket with a barrel, um, you know, in those horrible things with a key where you've got to put a key in. And I just went, I just, an overnight kind of went, that's it. I can't do that. Became like a feminist, was doing the comedy and I got booked after my first set, not because I was good, just because there's no other women doing it. Mm. But I thought I was good. And that's all that mattered. Like, I thought I was good. And looking back, I realised how shit I was. Like, but I had, I just said yes to things. I, I didn't want to be a comic. There was no, con- I don't know when you started, Will, but there was no, this idea of people who are 17 and 18 that want to be comics. Mm. I'm like, it just wasn't a thing you chose to be. You, you, it just happened to me. Like for me, it happened. I was doing it, and then I went, "Oh my god, I think I'm a comedian." So there was no other women doing it then, and I just got pa- every gig I got paid for. I've had, I've been booed off stage. I've been chased out of rooms. I've been bleeding in the head from a beer can to my head, and I'd come off stage and went, I'd go, "Oh yeah, oh, that was all right." I think. <laughs> and I'd just like. I just push on. I'm pretty unflappable like that. Like I don't I don't take anything really personally. Well, I mean, so that timeline, let's just talk yeah. about that for a little bit because you're absolutely right about the fact. So even when I started, which was What year was that? So I'm how old am I now? 49 years old. I think yeah. I started when I was 21. So 28 years ago or something like yeah. that. Around that So you of. were like a baby to start as well. Like that's young to get out there and talk about what you think. I mean, it didn't feel young. I felt old <laughs> doing it at that point. You know, like there's people who were 15, yeah. you know, 16. I know actually last night you were involved in a yeah. local class clowns competition up here, which is high school kids who, you know, are thinking about having a career in comedy. And by the way, they're right. There yep. is a career in comedy. It's amazing. There are so many yep. careers in comedy now, not just being the person on stage, but as you know, you know, being the person who judges the comedy, being the person who organises the comedy, being the person who promotes it. Like, I mean, the comedy industry is an industry now that you can have several jobs in and several roles Absolutely. in and make a good living out of. But when I started, it was still running away to join the circus. And you're talking about another, you know, nearly another decade yeah. before that and not just... Like when I was doing it, at least as a country kid, you know, sitting on a farm in East Gippsland, when I was watching the television, I saw people that looked like me that were doing it. Mm. So there was a little part of my head that went, okay, well, I guess they're people who look like me, even though yeah. I am not those people. They look like me and I can do it. But what made you think, like, was there someone that was inspirational to you? I, was there a role model? Was there someone you thought you were yeah, following? Yeah, it was hard off? to find someone. You're right with that, what you can see. Like, I couldn't see it, but 
I, I kind of kept, there was something weirdly addictive about this idea. I just love the idea of having nothing. Like even before the idea of having a <laughs> no carbon footprint, the yeah. fact that I had no instrument that you walk on the stage mm-hmm. and you take them hostage with ideas. Yeah. Like armed with nothing oh my more God, than your I imagination. Just, That's I, what I always say. I know. And I right? just, to me, it was just like, I just love that. And I've, you know, I'd seen people in bands and see how, how, how fucked lugging is. Yeah. I went, I'm not doing that. So I'd moved to, I, I think at that time, the only person that I'd seen that I, you know, there was Wendy Harmer who I, you know, and Jean Kitson and, you know, women that I really held in huge Because The big gig was like, that was, that was the penultimate and it was funny and it was subversive. And, and I, and I loved, because during the eighties, Finding that place for political commentary and sticking it, you know, to the establishment was was what comedy did. It was yeah. exciting. I remember I loved Whoopi Goldberg as well. And what is that about? It's funny. I ask young comics who they love as comedians, and they always bloody name Americans. Mm-hmm. And I think that is that real parochial thing in us as Australians. I just don't think. I think we have an incredible comedic culture in Australia and I think it shits on a a lot of places or is comparable to. We've got to start celebrating that, but I am ashamed to say I... I did love Whoopi Goldberg. Well, and I, back then, there again... There's not many women. No, I mean, now, yeah. I mean, there's even Australians who are yeah. international superstars. So you could say Hannah Gadsby or you could yeah. say Ronnie Chang if you consider him to, or Jim Jeffries or these people who have, like, made huge imprints on the world stage. So, of course, but even without that, the best of our best has always been very competitive with the best of anybody's Absolutely. best. You look at the amount of Australians who've gone to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and walked mm. away with the top prize over there. We've always had an incredibly strong comedic culture. But Whoopi Goldberg, I think part of the reason they were Americans in the first place, Americans or Scots or Brits mm. or whatever, is that we didn't have YouTube, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have podcasts where we could you know, connect with all these people your introduction to comedy was very much whatever was available in a recorded form. And yeah. I remember back then, Whoopi Goldberg had an album called Fontaine, Why Am I Straight? How, which was yeah, amazing. a Broadway, a one-person character Broadway show that she'd done, which was partly stand-up, partly, you know, these series of characters. And it was – I remember there was a particular routine about abortion and I'd never heard anybody talk about abortion in the way that she talked about it. Like, I mean, to me, I did a gala in Montreal – many years ago now, but the Whoopi Goldberg was hosting. And I remember just how excited and overwhelmed I was to meet her, not because of, you know, Sister Act or, you know, any no, of those sort of... No, Mum was the same. Because of this, yeah. this album that was so pivotal to me. And that was the album that inspired me yeah. because what I saw in her work was um, insight and compassion and and stories that were being told that didn't exist in the mainstream and told with, I thought, enormous humour but enormous compassion. So I just, I loved it. It's funny, we're both from the country and both have little Whoopi Goldberg moments. So I fought to get, I was in Canberra. I'd moved to Canberra by that stage. I was about 20, I think, or 21 maybe. And what had taken you to Canberra? A bad relationship, Uh of course. I was, I was Cam- just drifting. Canberra's number one tourism yeah, policy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you got to get there. It was a bad relationship. But I'd kind of um, teamed up with this awesome woman who was this fierce Maori woman who I sort of walked into a room once and went, she's fabulous and terrifying. And she just looked at me and she said, oh, she looked at me and went, ugh. I hate, like, she hated, like, I was this pretty girl and she didn't like, and I, I made it my mission to befriend, I, I wore her down. So we started doing <laughs> a bit of a two-hander um, of comedy stuff. And so when Whoopi Goldberg came to town, it was when they still had that thing where you had to have an Australian, Australian support, support act. Yeah. So we just went to the touring agent and just said, we're it. Mm. And so this was, so we got the support, I got the support act, which looks, whenever I put, I put, have support, I've supported, like, Eartha Kit, which was yeah. fucking amazing. Like yeah. that was like one of my high moments just to share a stage with Eartha Kit. But that was a good show. But supporting Whoopi Goldberg, which sounds good. So people always go, wow. Yeah. But the, the actual criteria was we weren't allowed to speak. Uh-huh. What? <laughs> this was the criteria. We weren't allowed to speak or go on the stage. So we pretty well had to roam. You know that awful thing that you do where you roam? No. Yeah, we had Shut to up. roam. No. But, yeah. So we pretty well dressed like homeless women. Who are mute. (laughs) 
And but all we did, all we wanted to, was to sit in a room with Whoopi afterwards. Yeah. And talk to her. Which did you is, get to do that? Yeah, we did. Okay. Well, that's okay. So it was that, you were allowed to talk then. She yeah, didn't we, say, yeah. You can sit here, but you're not allowed to say anything. <laughs> so we were basically, looked like we were begging through the crowd, but huh. that was the support act. And we went, I don't care. We'll do whatever it takes. Um, so, yeah, that was that was a moment. And I'd say that was, that was kind of me reaching out to someone whose work I, I admired. Mm. And it was, it was that album and it was, it was that work she'd done. This year, Willosophy celebrated its 300th episode. And to celebrate, Will wanted to invite a comedian he loves, uh, who's also a podcaster and host of Never Not Funny. This is Jimmy Pardo. Were you a person that thought you would, like, have a, you know, a marriage, like, have children, have a family? Was that still part of what you thought your life might look like? Um. I think so. At the end of the day, I think uh, I think I probably wanted that at some point. And I mean, I certainly had enough relationships thinking that this is the one. And you know, then you know, oh, oh, it, oh, it's not. And you know, the you know, the, there's a million country songs written about you know wanting that person back, and then thank God they didn't come back because then I found my wife. And uh, and so uh, I knew from this almost from the second I met Danielle uh, that that is what I wanted that I wanted to, you know, uh, settle down. You know, I used to be, a, I was a drunk for many years. For most of the 90s, I was a drunk. And, um, you know, meeting Danielle stopped that. And, uh, you know, I'm, what, 24 years sober now. And um, uh, I don't preach about it. I don't, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not in the program. But if you go to the program, great, whatever works. Um, but uh, I think so. I think once I met Danielle, I certainly did. And, uh, and I'm very, very lucky that I have her and, and Oliver and, you know, we're, we're a neat little team, we're, we're, a, we're a nice little family. I mean, that's what it sounds like. And I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear you describe that, but that idea of a team, you do feel like, you know, the three of you in a way, com- like, you know, complete each other. Or 100%. There is a, so then are you scared about the fact that he is getting to the point where he, you know, I mean, like college and all these sort of things like is that something that you are I mean because there's clearly so much love and joy that you all bring each other that and of course you don't want to hold him back from his life and career mm-hmm. and ambitions and living his own life but there must be part of you that is thinking about that you know you only have so much of this left it um I I will I will solve California's drought problem the day that he goes off to college because yeah. I will just sob and um it will be weird to not have him around because he is, uh, you know, I know it, it sounds lame when a dad says he's my best friend, but he, but he, but he is. And my wife is too. Like I said, we're a team. And so like, it's going to be weird to go back to just being a two person team, uh, after having this guy with us for so long. And, um, you know, my hope is that he finds a college that he lives at and he goes away and he's able to live that life and find himself but I, I would love if he could do that within two hours of here so that if at any point we like, <laughs> hey, son, let's get together for lunch. Yeah. We can do that as opposed to being across the country. Um, but uh, if he goes across the country, obviously I'll, uh, I'll support that and whatever. But I, I, I yeah, well, I don't I don't want him to go, but he's got to go. Did you have a like philosophy to what you thought your parenting like style would be? You know, now that you are looking at a slightly finished product, like did you did you have a philosophy about like what you wanted to put into the bucket that would become you know your child's ideas and you know ambitions and possibilities? Like, um, was there I, or was it just um, we're making this up? As I think we're making it up, and just you yeah. know, I just. Uh, again, this sounds so hallmark movie of the week. Um, I did, we did, you know, we just showered him with love, and, and not in a way of um, everything he did was perfect. You know what I mean? Not everything was great, and it wasn't. It wasn't that. Um, you know, um, you know, we certainly didn't. I can. Some somebody else might argue that we spoiled him, but. Um, I don't. I don't want to say that I didn't. That I just wanted to do it differently than my parents because my parents did a pretty decent job considering 
what they were going through in life. My, you know, my mom was 20 when she had me. My dad was 23. They were children. They were, I mean, that's, that's a, those are, that's, those are children. And, uh, you know, so they did, they did the best they could having them divorced and then remarrying and do it. And, and they, they supported me. They showed me love. They did everything. And, and so when I say that I wanted to be different than what they did, I, I don't even know what that means, but I know I wanted it to be somewhat different than than that. I guess maybe not so much with the bickering and the yelling and all that. Maybe just not do that. And again, I'm guilty of uh, certainly guilty of still doing it. Um, yeah, I, how, how do, I, I like I mean, clearly your son loves comedy. Yes, which, he does. Like you know, not not every dad is lucky enough that their you know child shares an interest sometimes like you know the thing that your child is interested in if you're a good like i mean if you are the sort of parent who doesn't just make your child do the thing that they're interested in right. you know but is it a, a joy to you that he finds oh, like I, you know I, that same sort of joy in comedy i love it and by the way i am very guilty of being the other parent he has gone to more classic rock shows <laughs> he does he doesn't want to see foreigner you know what i mean but i, I bring him you know, we'll, hey, dude, we'll go, yeah, we'll go, you love sticks. Dad, I like three songs. Yeah. No, that's uh, yeah. that's a bad example. He actually likes sticks. But, um, I love, and I've said this on the show, Will, and I'll say it again. I love not only that, that he loves comedy and that we could share in comedy, both all three of us, again, with my wife included. Um, I love that he that he likes good comedy. I'm very mm. lucky that he understands the difference between <laughs> a good comic and a not good comic. I've never had to lie to him when he goes, Dad, I just watched so-and-so special and it's great. And just go, oh, great, son. Good for you. And uh, it's always, hey, I just watched John Mulaney. He's terrific. I just watched Nate Bargetze. He's terrific. I'm like, he's right. These are all great. These are great comedians. And he's, uh, you know, know, Kathleen Madigan, um, Paula Poundstone, uh, we we went to see her live and, you know, he got it. He was very young when we took him to see Paula, but... um, very grateful, and uh, I'm glad. I'm, honestly, I'm just glad he finds my stupidity funny. You know that he can laugh at my junk. That, yeah, that's really. I look, Jimmy. I've got so uh, I'm aware of time, and I've got a few more questions that well, are standard, so I'm going to ask plenty, them. Plenty of time. Um, We're good. Okay. Uh, so, firstly, what, what do you think happens when you die? Do you have a like a theory like that you well, live your life by? Is there? Uh, you mean what's going to happen here on Earth? Like, how are they going to celebrate my life, or do, like, what what happens oh. to me? You know what I like is that no one has ever looked at it at that point of view. Like in three hundred episodes, Wait, you're the first person who's ever everyone, every single other person just immediately leaps to like what happens to you when you die. Like every single other person I've asked that question has immediately answered what they believe, either, you know, nothing or heaven or whatever, you know, whatever their belief system is. You are the first person in 300 episodes who are like, you mean to everyone else? And I was like, oh, yeah, that is a good perspective. Um, It's interesting that you thought about that first. Well, they're going to be devastated. That's either really generous Uh, or about like, you know, yeah. Yeah. Really self-involved. Yeah, like, <laughs> will, will they feel the Jimmy Pardo size style within their life? <laughs> exactly. Like, it's, 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 it's close to having my own funeral before I die so I can see how they react. Um, it, um, or you're right. Or I'm very generous. Like, how will they, how will it affect yeah. life with me gone? Yeah. Um, yeah. But all right. So to answer it the way that everybody else has, uh, I grew up Catholic. Yeah. So I, you know, it was, heaven was ingrained in me. Uh, that said, as like as, as I've gotten older, I I don't I don't know. So I would imagine nothing. But I don't want to say that in the off chance my dad listens to this, and then if he if he is listening, uh, we go to heaven. Yeah, I mean, every if I'm happy for like I, I obviously none of us know the answer. Of course. So that's the first thing. And if and if believing something gives someone comfort, I don't want to take that away 100%. from them. I'm interested in. Um, what you think the meaning of life is? I know that's a big question, and I don't mean you to. to but like, what gives your life meaning to you, Jimmy Pardo? When you oh. think about this, is my life and how it is lived. What is it that gives it meaning? Well, again, the, you know, my family and and uh, yeah. what gives it meaning? I guess. Um, yeah, like just, I mean, but I even mean, family, like the family, don't give it meaning. Like you right. give your life some meaning that the family. Uh, 
I yeah, think what is that? I, I think honestly, the ability to bring joy to others. I think that's really mm. it, yeah. right? I think that that is, at the end of the day, uh, again, a little sappy, but uh, I think that's what it is. Speaking of parenthood, here's a clip from an episode Will did with uh, writer comedian Ben Jenkins talking about becoming a dad. But yeah, so yeah. like it, it's 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 weird uh, the the early times because they are giving you absolutely nothing back and they barely like they barely seem or behave in any kind of recognizably human way. And then around four months, their little eyes kind of focus and they smile and you're like, okay, well, and it's around about the time you're ready to just like leg it. You know what I mean? It's like nature's timing is very spot on there. Um, and then you're like, oh, great, I recognize you as a, as a person. This is, by the way, I should say, this is not the case with all parents. I've I've said this to people before yeah. who are absolutely fucking what are you horrified. Talking about? <laughs> I'm Cursed like, frog? What are you? <laughs> <laughs> I've talked to people who I'm like, you know how it's just shit? Yeah. You know how babies are just shit for three months? And they're like, I love my little child. Yeah. Never like, had a bad day. Every day's been a gift. <laughs> I've never met that person, by the way. All I've met, genuinely 100% of the surveys I've taken from parent, parents is that they love their kids despite the fact that they're fucked and it's yeah. fucked to raise them and it's really hard and it yeah. puts pressure on you forever <laughs> it's good despite that is normally what I hear I, yeah. I, I'm never hearing 100% everything's great reports yeah, I mean, you might, yeah, uh, I, you might know, not know as many liars as I do. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's that's where I've been. I uh, I was uh, I don't know how I don't know how time sensitive this podcast is, but um, I I watched the Matildas last night, um, which was a nice thing to do because that felt sort of part way, not just parenty. Uh, and that was good. So uh, I'm interested. So yes, that, that it does timestamp it, but I don't care. Okay. It doesn't matter. Like people, I mean, people will know that we recorded this at some point in the past. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They're already aware of that. <laughs> and often I like a, you know, a timestamp, right? Yeah. Yep. Because a timestamp actually, yeah. Like, because sometimes you'll say something that I noticed this week. So this timestamps it as well. Uh, there's two M's that have been dominating the Australian media this week, and they are the Matildas and Mushrooms. Yes, and, very much so. And you know, it is very much time stamped by, like, th- there was a the TV show The Chase, which is just like a you know a TV quiz show on Australian, yeah, yeah which is an international format. So people probably are familiar with that show, and yeah. They just had a quip. One of the chasers had a quip about their partner trying to poison them during a meal or they got sick after their partner. (laughs) And it became like a scandal just because this episode they recorded three months ago or whatever. Aired in the week when this scandal was going on. You're right. Like, so at least if you're time stamped of going, we know what day this is. It's like, you know, we're like, oh, isn't Sam Kerr great? And you're like, oh, you know, you know. She got cancelled the next day. Yeah, you know she like, tried to she did try yeah. to poison those people with right. mushrooms. Yeah, right? that's right. She poisoned the rest of the team with mushrooms. <laughs> Don't you remember that? <laughs> no, so I'm interested in as you said, like that idea of like, you know, connection with the rest of society. The Matildas, so I I I'm when you're a parent and particularly when you're in your own world de- dealing with that sort of stuff, but you're also somebody we'll get to, of course, who's worked in the media and works in the media and collaborates with other people. Yeah, I'm just yeah. interested in your perspective from that point of view on the Matildas. Yeah, rather than circling back to it, I want to just talk about it sure, while we're here sure, talking sure. about it. That idea of – so Gruen, the final episode of Gruen was on last night. How like did that rate, Will? Well, actually, weirdly <laughs> enough, I've just seen the overnights at this point. Yeah. And there was like 200,000 people watching, which is wow. actually – yeah. Ridiculous. <laughs> 200,000 un-Australian people. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow. A lot more than we expected. That we, I mean, yeah. like it'll be one of those things people watch on iView. And, but but I, I want to talk about the idea of the Matildas themselves and that connection point. Were you a person who was interested in like women's football at all before this or were you one of the people, the many millions of Australians who were swept up in, you know. Yeah, like I I am somebody who, and like I feel like that question was such a trap, Will, by the way. Um, I am one of those people who actually have always wanted to be into like any sporting code. I come from a really sporting family. My, my brother, my father, my sister, all mad for just all sorts of sports and for whatever reason – uh, and I mean this sincerely, like I, I just, I, I can't, there's, there's something about 
there's something about the way that I'm built that means that I, I, I can't learn a language and I can't enjoy sport. I don't know what it is. Okay. And, and I'm not, and I'm saying that with shame. You know mm. what I mean? Like I, there are people out there who are proud of this. I hear people always going on about like, well, sport just doesn't grab me. I'd much rather be reading a novel. Um, and I just think you poor sad shit because like you don't understand that you're missing out on something great. And I do. And I'm missing out on it because like so many of my mates are into this. So many of my mates are like, you know, every, every weekend they've got something to look forward to, something to get heartbroken over, something to really care about. Um, so when a big sporting thing like this happens, it's like one of the only times when I can find myself getting really swept up on it and get like a little insight into that world and into that feeling. Okay, that's interesting to me, like because there are some people who can't do something or don't understand something, therefore their immediate thing is to say that that thing is wrong. Yeah, that thing or is wrong. Yeah. You can just say, I don't get this, but I can see that other people get this and there is something in my life. Because like the way I feel about cricket is the way that some other people feel about Lord of the Rings. They're both <laughs> just invented things that have a weird mythology. Sure, and if you sure. understand the weird mythology and history yeah. and like, you know, moves you can make or, or Dungeons and Dragons, right? Sure. Like there's a rule to it. Yeah. There's a universe. And if you understand the rules in the universe and the quirks and the whatever, yeah. then that's what it makes it magical to you. But yeah. And, and also like for both cricket and Lord <laughs> of the Rings, the sort of deeply yeah. racist backstory. in yeah. both. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I, I actually think there's a third kind yeah. of, of 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 reaction to mm. not understanding something, and I think that this is actually far more common and far more like I don't know endemic maybe, which is I don't understand this thing. I've never had an interest in it, or I've never it's never really come across my um, table. But hey, give me ten minutes, and I reckon I can bone up on it enough mm-hmm. to explain it to you. Because if I've never heard of it and I didn't understand it prior to this, it must be pretty simple. I feel like so much of journalism and light ant and media in general is people who hadn't heard of something a week ago explaining it to somebody who hadn't heard of it 10 minutes ago. And where is the, where is the value for anyone in that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, there's a value obviously for people who can – interpret a big idea into a palatable idea for the sake of informing people. Like but I think that there's a role. Is a, that is a rare skill. You but know that's what I mean? a role in society. I think that in a general sense, in a more broad discussion, we become very guilty of judging people for not knowing something that we just learnt ourselves. So Absolutely. Not, so it's not just the explanation of that thing to somebody else, but it's the <laughs> judgment inherent of you're an idiot because you don't understand this thing that I only learnt two weeks ago. Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, and also like, to, to make it even more moral, mm-hmm. like to return to the Matildas, I've seen so many people online like posting like these beautiful, great pictures of like these incredible crowds that we've been talking about and being like, tell me again how nobody cares about women's sport. And it's like, you didn't care about women's sport two weeks ago. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you've got to own that, that this is like a moment. I mean, some, some people did. Some people who are posting that have been like, you know, fans for years. But I know for a fact that a lot of the people who are getting on their high horse about it, they're, they're just as ignorant as the people that they're kind of chastising. I, you know, I, I do think, though, that there is some truth in the fact that we are constantly told that things will be terrible when often – the reality is if they're given an opportunity, they will be absolutely fine or even great. And the two examples that we can point to like of this, like with recency bias around the Matildas, but the Matildas and the FIFA Women's World Cup and the support of that is clear indication of if you give them chance and opportunity, if you build it, they will come, right? Yep, yep. But the other one's the marriage equality debate. Yeah. There was so much fucking fuss and like the, mm-hmm. the sky's going to fall down and this is going to happen and yep. it's all going to – and we knew that wasn't true. We knew that like it, like things would probably just, you know, go along pretty much as normal but just better for the people who'd been previously discriminated against and that has 100% been the case. Like that is literally we now have evidence that all that bullshit was indeed bullshit, right? Yeah. So we're in the middle of a campaign now – in Australia around the yeah you know, the recognition, the voice in the constitution of Australia, the Indigenous recognition. And, 
you're, you're hearing all the same arguments they heard with Marbo when the whole, yeah. you know, they're like Marbo was going to mean that everyone was yeah. going to lose their house and we were going to blah, blah, blah. And, you know, all these same arguments we're hearing around the recognition in the constitution. Now we're hearing repeated again, like we did with marriage equality, like we hear with women's sport. And the truth of it always is that it's, that it is not true. That yeah. like, this will, if, if Australia votes, yes, it will be fine. Like the, yeah. nothing, nothing bad's going to happen. It's only going to create an opportunity for disenfranchised people to become franchised again. I do wonder why. I, I don't know. Like I'm, a, I'm a little bit younger than you, but it feels to me like in my gen, like I'm, I'm 36. Yeah, I'm in it, my late 30s. <laughs> <laughs> and it sort of feels to me like my and you know listening to you talk about that and listening to you just kind of pick two examples sort of quite easily of a, of a moment that seemed doomed or well, not necessarily doomed, but seemed like it would just kind of seem like the status quo would hold and the status quo budged in quite a significant way. It made me realize that I do have an outlook that I kind of need to keep in check when I think about the big picture, which is that, you know, the, the status quo is such a stubborn, unmovable thing. And, um, and you know, no, nobody has the, Nobody has the guts or the wherewithal to change it um, because it's actually not something I believe in my bones, but it's something that I find myself expressing quite a lot. And I wonder if that's just a product of like the formative years that I grew up and like, you know, the politics that I was exposed to, or if it's just like the idea of more recently living through Trump and Brexit and all this sort of stuff, which has sort of made... I don't know. Is, is, is it nihilism? Maybe. I'm not sure. But like, it's interesting because like when you, when you bring up those examples um, and you know, like neither of them, neither of them are going to eradicate poverty overnight and neither of them are going to sort of unrig an unfair system, but there are wins, there are gains. Um, and it's quite easy to lose sight of that, I think. One of my favorite episodes from this year was by a comedian whose videos, every time I see them on, on Instagram, I stop and I watch because they're so damn funny. Mel Buttle and her mother character is just, I don't know how she met my mum. I don't know how she knows her, but it's, it's, it's uncanny. And uh, in this episode, Mel talked about giving and receiving feedback in the comedy world. But before that, finding her voice. I moved back to Brisbane. Um, I kind of strike Josh. Josh is a big part of the Brisbane scene, and um, he wasn't gay yet. Well, he wasn't. <laughs> well, you know, he wasn't yeah. out. Neither was no, I. I know. Yep. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. remember? So yeah, <laughs> I remember when you both weren't gay. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> So Josh and I just two heterosexuals, <laughs> the two most hetero Brisbane comics, uh-huh. rolling around town. What have what have those two got in common? They both have a wonderful cardigan on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Josh and I became really fast friends, uh, and his uh, who else was around? Tom Ward, who was in Please Like Me with Josh, lived in Brisbane as well. We became a little group, and Josh for. Um, just was the only person I thank him for it who gave it to me straight. And he said, why don't you be funny on stage the way you are with us and with your friends? Why don't you try that? Because he said it quite politely, but I got the, he was like, that's not going to get you anywhere. Basically he goes, um, this is just for you. Will. this has got to come out. He goes, you're like a young Bev Killick. That's the track you're on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so I think Josh was letting me know that I, probably wasn't headed. I wasn't on the right path if I wanted to make this a career, right? He goes, people who do one-liners and, and what you do don't advance anywhere. I was like, okay. And he go, and then he sat, he literally sat down with me at his house in New Farm in Brisbane and he got a piece of paper and he goes, right, what was the thing you were saying before about your dad? And he goes, okay, say this, 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 and this, this. And we went to an open mic night that we were both on at and he goes, it's open mic in Brisbane. No one's here. Who cares? Just do it. Just do these just do this story about your dad. It was something like that. And I was like, okay. And I took this huge risk, it felt very scary, to let go of jokes with punchlines, with rude words that we know would get sounds, to tell a story. God, so vulnerable. 
and it crushed. Annie was right. And I got a different sound out of the audience and I noticed they were sitting and listening and watching for once. And that was my breakthrough. And it was because of Josh. And then from there, I started to think, what, what else, what other material would, you know, could we do that isn't just um, about uh, how, how pubes are like Julia Gillard? I need to know what the punchline of that was, but I <laughs> we like yeah. what a what an intriguing setup that is. Mm. Um, original. <laughs> so, but I'm interested in like that strength of like being a friend who, you know, if I if I have broccoli like you know in my teeth, I'd rather you as a friend tell me I have broccoli in my teeth than me walk around all day like with broccoli in my teeth and we get to the end of the day and saying, hey, I saw Mel earlier and like I've definitely had this broccoli in my teeth. Why did she never tell me that I had it? And yet I worry that I'm the sort of person who would let the person keep the broccoli in their taste because I wouldn't want to embarrass them or embarrass me or make a fuss or like, you know, say that. Do you think you are the sort of person – I mean you were the person in this scenario who had someone say it to you – if the roles were reversed, are you the sort of person who could say that to somebody else? Look, I have over the years very mildly, nowhere near as straightforward as Josh, tried to give people some very delicate, soft advice and it hasn't been received. They don't change it. Mm. You know what? I'm not going to have – I've had one very yep. – slight, light, mild go at perhaps mm. saying that you can't do that accent from that race that you don't belong to on stage <laughs> anymore, for example, Will. Um, and it, no, the answer is no, Will. Um, no, I don't have it in me. I, yeah. I mean, I don't either. And no. I admire it in other people when they can do it. I can – Offer advice if I'm asked for advice. If somebody says to me, please have a look and tell yep. me what you think, I can offer advice. But that idea that I could give somebody unsolicited, life-changing advice in that way is confronting. And, I mean, the accent thing is hilarious. I am so grateful because obviously I've been doing this for 30 years and comedy has changed a lot of what is acceptable in 30 years. And I am so grateful that I never had a talent for accents like, I, I can't do them. Like, and therefore I have nothing like dodgy in regard to accents in my back catalogue. But 30 years ago, if I'd had the capacity to do accents, you know there would be at least a couple that like at the time were fine <laughs> that have not, not aged very well at all. I was right on the cusp of when people started filming their sets and putting them on YouTube. And I, I'm really lucky. Will is all I'll say <laughs> the first two years of, of my stand-up, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm interested in that, like just while we're talking about it, because you've found a great deal of success online and we'll get back to that, I think, chronologically a little bit later. But you have now, mm -hmm. as a, like a fully formed comedian, like utilised online as such a really valuable part of your career and it's actually got like a your work out to a much broader audience, like using that online. But, of course, for kids who are coming through now and I say kids in the comedy sense people who are new to comedy yes. um this is seen as the future and because it is so accessible like a lot of people do film from the very start or they broadcast they don't just film from the start but they film and broadcast mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from the start like yep. do you have thoughts around oh I've got that? yep <laughs> you bet um <laughs> All I'll say, Will, is yeah. I look back on a festival show that I did maybe even one year ago or two years ago and I look back at the jokes, even with that shorter turnaround, and I think, oh, my God, how embarrassing. Who was that person two years ago doing that, saying that? And there's no evidence of these festival shows. They just happened in a room, rooms around the country, and they're done. And I'm, I'm like, if I'm that cringe at myself as a professional who's probably, I don't know, I might have done 10 Melbourne comedy festivals, maybe 12, I don't know. If I'm that critical of myself and so aware of how quickly I've moved on and changed, maybe if you've been doing comedy for six months, a good permanent 
record of what you've done being filmed forever on the internet isn't a great idea. A couple of reasons. Number one, you hopefully you will develop and get better and realise that when you thought you were great, you weren't actually that great. But also, I used to, and I still don't have a lot of stuff stand up online, other stuff I have online, but I want, when someone's Googling me and going, should we get Buttle in to be on the show? Should we get her as a guest on the radio? I want real, I want you to find my best, my gala set. You know, I don't want you to see me at the Chuckle Hut in 2013 talking about stuff I shouldn't be, you know. Put, I want you, if it's online, people who work in the industry who are going to offer you money and put money on in your pocket will look at it and see it. So if you don't want the head of ABC Comedy to see your four-minute set filmed at midnight at the bumfuck nowhere comedy club, don't put it on the internet. Save it for you. Watch it. Review your footage. Show your peers. What do you reckon? Sure. Maybe it yeah. doesn't need to be up there. I... Look, I, every time some young comedian sends me like a clip from their early days and says, can you have a look at this and give me some advice, the first piece of advice I give them is take it down. Yeah. Yeah. Take it down. Like only two things can happen. One is that you have put a permanent record of you being shit on the internet, even if it's good, even if it is good, it can be damaging in another way, which is if it goes well – you get stuck there because your audience then just expects that to you. Like, I mean, it it gives you no – if the Julia Gillard's pube thing blows oh. up online, yes. you know, there is a sense of, well, why would I move on from the Julia Gillard's pube stuff? Because – and so I think creatively you never want to get stuck at your first draft. You don't want to, like, have to even – so even if in you think as a young person you think, oh, this will be brilliant, I'll get to, you know – but the, I've seen so many people have success with something early on when it does, you know, where they roll the dice and it actually comes up their lucky number and then they just get stuck having to do that same thing over and over and over because their audience, they think that's the only thing they can do and it's the only thing that they want from them and that can also be a set of handcuffs yeah. as well. Yeah. So as a creative person who wants to go on yeah. a, like a journey and some growth, like so – I think it's worth talking about and I'm not suggesting to people that they shouldn't be broadcasting things and I'm not suggesting to people that they shouldn't be like experimenting but I can tell you 100% what you said just before is the case. I do a television show where we often use newer people particularly in workshops or you know encourage people to come through and if someone sends me a name of, hey, do you know this comedian? The first thing I do is just Google their name and watch some clips that come up. Now, I know enough about comedy to hopefully prioritise that a comedy up late spot is better than the Chuckle yeah. Hut spot, yeah. but yeah. but I'm still probably going to watch both of them. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And you don't want me to watch both of them. No, no. No, I want people in rooms who decide if I get a job no. or an invite to have to go on – my Melbourne gala set that's professionally shot, heavily edited. It's got six back-to-back strong laughs in it. I want you to decide that. I want you to see that I've hosted five seasons of Bake Off. Um, you can make your decisions on me on my best, best available, the top stuff I've ever done. And then if that's not enough, you can ask around. And whatever you know, people want to say about me, they can say, and I, I hope it's positive, but – I reckon that is going to be a stronger offering than – what's the deal with uh, cats, guys? You guys, who's got a cat here? Like, put your, like don't, we don't need to film our practices. Right. Yeah. You film your practices for you, for you because that's what the scene is mostly. It's practice, right? Back around Melbourne Comedy Festival season, we featured a couple of New Zealand comics – one of them was this guy, Ray O'Leary. I mean, I don't think any government likes corrections. I feel like it's no. always, it's all just it's a problem. Uh, yes, it's, a, it's yeah. a problem area. It only ever causes problems and you try to do things, you know, and um, the public get mad and say you're being soft on crime That's or right. whatever. Yeah. yeah, you try to do something, you know, proactive to help the people who are in those yeah. situations and you lose everybody else <laughs> yes. who's like, lock them up, mate. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, like, I mean, terrible. Yeah. Yes, this is terrible. why, like, I mean, and of course then there's, I mean, maybe less so in New Zealand, but like worldwide, you know, 
there is this like prison industrial complex yeah. now where there is like they're big businesses yeah, right. and like like a hotel needs like maximum capacity yeah, for yeah. a hotel to operate properly it's yeah. the same with the prison system so there is some imperative to lock anyway there's a lot of competing <laughs> factors when it comes to corrections <laughs> but yes it wasn't it was not fun i guess basically feeling like a cog in the machine and no. and, and uh, i mean simply the having the job you sucked and then also i guess the morality of the job you could sometimes question like i i did feel Maybe I'd necessarily, I didn't necessarily do anything good at the job, but I do think I maybe have helped stop worse things from happening. Okay. You know, that well, was, that's good. Which is maybe, I mean, maybe I did. Maybe and I it's did. great that you, the person who was doing that, left. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> that's great news. <laughs> the one person who had their finger in the dike was like, you know what, I'm going to go down to the classic and tell some jokes. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Good luck with your futures. Yeah, we have fun installing that death penalty you guys have been talking about. Yeah, no, it's off. okay, guys. There's a whole bunch of guys from gangs that I grew up with <laughs> in my town. So they're all in here. So they'll, they'll be able to help you out. Uh, so, so you're doing this job. So comedy starts while you're doing this job? Yeah, uh, yes. Or do you leave and then start comedy? No, I, I was doing oh, – no, I, I, I was not that brave. No, I would never – and I, I, just, I don't think I'd ever advise someone – <laughs> to just quit your job and start an open mic, that'd be that'd be terrible. And I was started doing open mics um, while I had this job, uh, and you know I'd been thinking about doing comedy for a, a long, long time in my life. Yeah. Where uh, did where did that come from? I, th this is maybe this is maybe bad, but well, the first stand up special I ever saw was from Ellen DeGeneres. You know, I, I didn't like her comedy, but I loved the way she treated her staff. Staff, yeah. yeah. Well, that's it. I <laughs> yeah, mean, right? It really inspired me. Yeah. No. You, you, did, you don't like her comedy, but you like people who had to pretend that they weren't, the, <laughs> like, they weren't gay for yeah. years. That's what really you enjoy. So this would have been post, this is, I, I, I think I probably know what special this is. This is post her coming out? Yes. Yes. Uh, yes it was, and she did like a big, a big special. I can't remember what yes, the name of it, it was, but I, it was. It may have been called The Beginning. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. It was very good stand-up, though. Yes. And I can actually see, funnily enough, because you are such a great joke writer, oh, oh, there you. are lots of joke jokes yes. in that. Like, I could see, like, it's funny to say yeah. I can see a little bit of Ellen DeGeneres <laughs> still in your work, but because- I, I am a closeted lesbian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, and you are, I mean, you were terrible to the yes. staff here on the way in. I thought it was inappropriate. They're not even your staff. Yes. And you were like demanding a Diet Coke. Like, <laughs> Which I still haven't got. <laughs> Apparently we don't have any. That was I'm the, off. I'm the out. World's, <laughs> the world's second most popular beverage. <laughs> Not available here. Thank you. Um, so uh, I can see that. There's great joke writing. Yeah. And she is an incredible, like her yeah. timing as a yeah. comedian. Like I, yeah. I get that. Uh, particularly around that period of time. Yes. I think she was a... Very good mainstream mm. stand-up comedian. She, yeah, she. I think one of her hours, the the second one actually here and now. I do. I genuinely think it's one of like the greatest hours of observational comedy. Like I still do rate her as a stand-up comedian. She obviously has gone into you know talk shows and um and, and legal disputes with her yeah. staff. <laughs> that's where she, two main passions. Yeah, that's where she chose to put her energy. But, but I, I do think the comedy. You know, when it was there, she was you know at the at the top of the game. You know. And that was one of the first I, I just happened to be exposed to. And that I remember, you know, I, th I guess that was sort of the um, thing that made me think, oh, maybe this could be a job for me. And I do know, um, I also remember my mum, this is a, maybe another um, comedian who's not obviously controversial, but um, I also loved Michael Barrymore when I was under five. Oh, uh, who, um, wow. Yeah. Well, I, 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 my, I mean. Yes, I, I think I was obsessed with his TV show when I was a, when I was a child when he, I don't know what he would have hosted back then. I guess his own talk show or his own, his own. I can't even work out what the timeline would be <laughs> on that for this to be able to have happened. <laughs> well, it only had just arrived in New Zealand. So yeah, okay, that's right. Time. Yeah, it had been off air for twenty yeah. years, <laughs> but they got some tapes yeah. of it at TVNZ, <laughs> and they were rolling them around. <laughs> There's this new guy, yeah. Michael Barrymore, hottest, hottest, <laughs> hottest thing from overseas. You've got to check this out. He's scoring super well in the under five demographic. <laughs> yeah, put, yeah, put your kids in front of this. <laughs> this is brilliant. They love him. Uh, so. Yeah. Was it, what was the appeal? Because like, you know, was it the jokes themselves? Was it the, um, you know, the presentation of the jokes? Was it what they were talking about? Was it the craft? Was it the structure? Like, I mean, what, what did you find appealing? Do you think? Oh, that's, that's such a good question. I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure what like sort of pickled my brain from, I, I, I think it was, I, 
if I had to guess, I think I was seeing someone being funny in sort of a professional capacity in such in a sort of a huge room. And I guess, you know, I used to, I felt like, you know, I was a funny kid, but I was I was also a quiet kid, you know, and but I'd make my friends laugh and stuff. And I think that was sort of like maybe my way of seeking validation from my friends or, you know, you know, you're getting a genuine response from someone when they laugh at something you say. And I, I guess I was being able to see you could do that as a living, you know, get that kind of response from someone. Cause I, I don't know if you had a similar thing growing up, but I, I definitely, definitely comedy was my way of connecting with other people. I felt like making them laugh. And um, yeah. So you, like you're doing this thing in your life that gives you some like, social mobility yeah. like yeah, you interact with your friends yeah. you enjoy doing it yes but this is an example of oh hey this thing that you do for fun yes in the same way as some kid playing rugby union in yeah. new zealand like you know in the backyard with his <laughs> friends might go one day i'm going to play for the all black yeah. suddenly you can look at you know michael barrymore <laughs> and ellen DeGeneres, <laughs> the two most obvious of all comedic influences <laughs> <laughs> and think this is my way out of here. I am going to be New Zealand's cross between these two. Oh God! I have an abused staff member lying face down in one of my pools. <laughs> so okay, so you open mics. Um, so you're, you're working at this job. You, you've got an eye on comedy. Yeah. Is there people in New Zealand now? I mean, you're an adult now. Like yeah. this is, I assume, I assume this is not some <laughs> prodigy child with a philosophy <laughs> master's working at the Department of Corrections. So you're a grown adult. Yeah. Are there people on the New Zealand comedy scene who are influential to you at that point? Are you looking to people locally and seeing, oh, this person? Like, I mean, obviously you'd imagine the success of Flight of the Concords and these sort of things, Ray Starby, those sort of people. But are there other people around the scene or within the New Zealand like comedy community or anything that were in influential to you? That, that That's a good question. I don't know if they were influential per se, but I did used to, before I started, I used to go down and watch um, an old, a comedy show and doesn't exist anymore called The Medicine, which was, so I was in Wellington at the time, which is um, our, our capital city, but it's not the comedy hub of New Zealand. Um, and so I used to watch the local comedians there and I don't, I don't know if they were influential, but they were, I guess, inspirational. I used to think, um, they were huge local celebrities before I started doing stand up. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, everyone must know who these guys are. Yeah. And I just happened to not know who they are. And then I started doing comedy. I was like, oh, of course, no one gives a damn about ever. us. Yes, no. Like, honestly. Probably ever. Yes. Like, <laughs> even if you're Ellen DeGeneres, a lot of people are like, which one's she again? <laughs> like, that's that's how little people actually yes. care about this thing. But I get that. And, yes. and there's also probably a level of, you probably saw some people, because I think often inspiration doesn't come by seeing the best people. Like, yes. I mean, the initial inspiration comes from that. Yes. But sometimes the entry level, the yeah. Like I, I often say to people when they say I'm interested in doing stand-up comedy, I saw your show tonight and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's great. Thanks for coming to see my show. But the best way to get into it is go and see an open mic because you'll see four or five people that you're like, oh, I'm funny in them. And that is actually, that's the barrier to entry. That is genuinely, I think, maybe the way people get into comedy is they go see an open mic for the first time and realize Oh, I can do this. Yeah, because there is. I mean, there or is. Or at a, least I can not do it as badly as <laughs> yes. these people do it. Like there are people who are at least as bad as me doing it. So yeah. that is not a barrier to entry. Yeah. It turns out because if you see comedians at their peak, you could often yeah. think, "Oh, I'll never be as funny as that." That's a, that's a, that's incredible. That's amazing. But if you see how low the, the barrel, can go. <laughs> yeah, that's what you got to do. Don't, don't don't start with the people who are really good yes. at it and make it look easy. Yes. Go and go and look at some people who make it look impossible <laughs> okay so you start seeing it do you start doing it in yeah. wellington yes yes i, I was I, my inspiration at this time now, mm. now that i remember is um stuart lee was very big in my oh, brain yes, I, was, yeah, I think you know comedian's comedian and, and i've did i think his the inspiration i think he had on me was um when you write a routine you should write it as basically as long as it can go which i mean i still it's, it's something I, I struggle with you know when when you watch someone do a routine that goes for longer than 10 minutes that's the i think that's sort of the goal that's always incredible to be able to talk about one thing for as long as you can it's something i'm you know still aspiring to but that was definitely the way i approached a topic would be like i'll just sit down i'll write six minutes about one thing i'd get up on stage and be like oh only you know, 30 seconds of this is funny. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that is the problem. Yes. It's making the whole six minutes yes. funny. Yes. It's not being able to write six minutes on it. 
You can keep writing. <laughs> you just have to work out the funny bits. But, but yeah, so I, and then I um, I was performing around in the local mm. scene. Um, and I um, What sort of things were you doing then? Like, I mean, as in, like, do you remember what your first comedic takes were? Like, what sort of stuff you were talking yeah, about? Yes, the very first set, I, the first proper set I wrote, um, which I think actually, well, yeah, the first proper set I wrote was about... Um, uh, this is something I'll never I'll never talk about. I'm ashamed I wrote six minutes on it, but it was about uh, incest, uh, and it was it was you know it was it was sort of you know my family history with it because I think I mean. Well, no, that actually sounds a lot darker than I needed it, to say. It sound. did a little. I've got to be honest with you. Sorry, you might you have did. noticed from my slightly <laughs> cocked eyebrow yes, that, like, I was like, is he just going to brush over that, or are we going to explore that a little bit more? <laughs> maybe I should have done some more research before yeah. this chat. I normally like to just wing it, go with the flow, but maybe, <laughs> we maybe need, you I just need brought call. up something that I really should have been aware of. <laughs> I need to call someone. <laughs> When's are you okay, Dave? But anyway, I, I um, no, it was like I think you know, sort of like when you look back through your family history and you fi- and you you find in the family tree, you know, someone's married their cousin yes. or whatever. You I know. mean, eventually, if you look back at most family trees, there yeah. was a point where, like, your cousins were yeah. like we think about these days. Yeah. You're like, well, you meet a lot of people. Yes. Like in the old days, you didn't meet a lot of people, yes. and most of them you were related to by the nature of yes. geography. Yes, like yes. you know, the people who lived in your local area were yeah. all families yes. who had lived in that area yeah. so eventually there was going to be some intermingling yeah. going to the next town over was a week's yeah. trip you know you can't right. yeah. you can't do that all the time <laughs> yes. and just hope it works yeah. out the cousins here like three times a week so <laughs> what are you going to do this year we were also lucky to feature an episode with uh, sydney comedian writer broadcaster jen fricker now it turns out before comedy jen was super interested in music so like I grew up like around the northern beaches of Sydney. I was like a little surfy kid, surf skate oh, kid. Okay. Um and but I also was really into music. Um and as I got like grew up, I um got more and more into music and I ended up like becoming a classically trained double bassist. And I like toured Europe and stuff in orchestras and How old are you when you're touring Europe? Playing the double bass, like sixteen, like I would get time off wow. school to go and like um played, yeah, like we're playing a lot of orchestras in Australia, and like that was kind of my plan was that I would like go to uni and then audition for like Vienna Philharmonic, and then I would yes. be like in Europe All about that bass, in yeah, Europe. exactly, that's exactly it. Um, and then I had a nervous breakdown at twenty one because it turns out that's not sustainable. Um, and then I, when you say you had a nervous breakdown, like a proper nervous breakdown or is this yeah. like, a, yeah, yeah. It, is it just because it is, I mean, it, it seems to be such a precise and practiced and intense skill to learn as a, particularly as a child. Like, I mean, I played music like when I was a child, but never like, you know, any higher than level of like a school orchestra, you know, did yeah, some, yeah, yeah. you know, lessons in like, you know, playing the keyboard and like did some levels of, but never that sort of intense, you know, you're going to be somebody who does this for a living in any totally. way. And even that. Even that, even trying to master those instruments as a child is like the hours of practice to be as shit as I was. Like, <laughs> what like, did you play? Uh, I, I like I played keyboard. I played flute. They were the two that I. Oh, yes. bless! That's I know. so cute. I, I know. I was the only boy in uh, the flute class with six girls. Learned a lot about girls in the world in that class. Yeah, I will say of that. course. Less so about the flute, but yeah. more about girls. And but, then, when did you stop playing flute? University. I went. I took my flute with me to university, and then yeah. about halfway through my first year of university, I took that flute, yeah, to cash converters and got <laughs> some money to spend on beer or whatever. Yeah, I yeah, assume. yeah. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It's like um, I grew up around like the environment of like elite classical music is just so intense. And from a very young age, you're kind of taught, like, all of your friends, all of them, they're your competition. Like, you have to not only be better than them, you have to take from them. Like, any, all opportunities are taken from other people. And, like, at the time, I was like, yeah, that's normal. Like, that's normal to think of that. Like, you know, and so you just, 
double bass is such a physical instrument as well. So I would just be, I would get to school at 6 a.m. I'd practice for two hours before school. I would like do my classes and I'd do 20 minutes at recess of practice and I'd like do the rest of my classes and I'd do half an hour practice at lunch. Then I'd do more classes. Then I'd do two hours of practice after school. Then I would go to orchestra and then I'd be home about eight or nine to do and I'd do my um, homework on the train home. And like that was just my life and I was like so disciplined and so like, you know, I would get these like calluses on my hands and I would dip my hands in like methylated spirits to like harden up my, and it was just, but it was just like, it was in service of something greater than myself, you know, like it was in service of like, I have to be the best and I can never let down myself because I'm letting down everyone and like all these masters who have invested their time in me and, and yeah, so I don't think it's any surprise that I got to 21 and I was like, maybe this is deeply unhealthy way to live. Um... But yeah, it was like yeah, it'd be more of a surprise if you didn't. Yeah. To be honest. So um, and I worry I, for the people who did yeah, it because I still right? know a lot of people from high school, and I would say the mm. majority of us all burnt out, and we're like, this is not sustainable, this is not healthy. But there are still a couple that are in that world, and I'll say it, will they're freaks? They're weird. <laughs> well, they would have to be though to survive <laughs> that, to thrive in that. Yeah. Luckily, you've entered into another profession that is totally <laughs> healthy and normal. <laughs> yeah. yeah everyone's, everyone's cool. Everyone's great and fine. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's really chill, so it's nice. Few, few people who could have done with some discipline in their lives, probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, what's your relationship now? So, something like that could really like mean that like I'm never going to touch the double bass again what's your relationship to the instrument now do you play are you able to enjoy it for like you know recreation or fun do you have that love of it in any way <laughs> do anymore I just pick it up um yeah no I don't really play double bass anymore I'm only because I live in share houses in Sydney yeah. like there's no room Tough to say. For it's it. me yeah. and my double bass <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, gonna need two rooms exactly, the bass yeah. likes to sleep in its own room <laughs> well people will literally sleep in the double bass storage mm. room at school yeah. because like the it was just easier to stay there than to go home <laughs> which is again insane people were rooting in there a lot actually they would make like little bed fortresses out of all the double base cases it was a horny place um anyway just <laughs> a bit of color for the people who need to <laughs> imagine what that world was like it was horny it was very horny um my <laughs> my current relationship to, I, yeah I don't really play I still play music just for fun and and like I like sharing music I've like um, been like working a little bit with um, the Sydney Symphony Orchestra this year, like working on their kindergarten program, like teaching like little kids about classical music, which I love, like because these are kids who haven't been outside of their house much the past five years they've been alive. And so it is very lovely to watch music from the perspective of people who don't even have never seen that many instruments, that many like live players on stage all at once and like, their tiny little faces are very nice. Whereas I'm coming from it from like, it took everything from me, like kind of place. So it's nice. (laughs) Yeah. To see people engage with it in what is actually a healthy way, as opposed to the way that you were forced to engage in it, which was completely unhealthy and drained all the love away for a fair while. Yeah. Okay. So you get to 21 years of age, you've been training all your life to be one thing. Yeah. And then you're not. Yeah. That thing that has been, I imagine, the spine of your entire identity. So, I mean, to be that good at something at that age, like it's rare that you have a, a broader range of wide interests, I imagine, right? Like it's mostly this. And so it goes away. Like what does that feel like to have that thing that you thought you were going to be completely sort of, you know, to remove it from your life, to ex- exercise it from your life? I felt very, obviously very lost, but then I wonder, like, I feel like generally 21 year olds are pretty lost. Like who knows what, I mean, yeah, I, I look around at my friends I had at the time who weren't in music and I'm also like, yeah, they didn't fucking know either. Um, and so, yeah, I just remember being like very embarrassed that I wasn't doing it. And it's funny as well. Cause my parents were like, 
well, you better get back to music school. It's like the only real job you can have, which is so funny because like music's not a real job. But they were like, yeah. well, like yeah. <laughs> you fucking deadbeat. Like uh, yeah, it's weird. It's weird that your fallback is music school. <laughs> totally. Um, and so yeah, I ended up just like going to uh, transferring out of like the conservatory of music to like main campus at Sydney Uni and doing an arts and science degree like everyone else. And I was just kind of doing it because. I didn't have anything else to do, you know? I was just like, well, I may as well be somewhere and my friends are here, so I'll just, like, come do that and hang out. And I was studying art history and psychology um, and just, like, kind of in my first uh, lecture of psychology, there was a guy heckling um, the lecturer and I turned around and it was my best friend from primary school. So I was like, okay, this is the right place I should be in. <laughs> yeah. And my friend Jordan, and um, he's like, he was, he's like a very funny guy and stuff. And he was involved a lot in like uni comedy. And so he's like, oh, do you want to come to this? And I was like, yeah, okay. And then I would just like kind of hang out. It was just like, um, I've heard other people talk about this podcast and I feel like you're getting like the Rashomon of like all these people at this, like, Project 52 comedy club thing that was happening at Sydney Uni 10 years ago. I like – I mean, one of the things that I have enjoyed about doing this show over the years is that it is all interconnected. Like, I I rarely talk to anyone on this show that isn't connected to my world in some way. It's rare that the person is, like, a complete stranger to me. Like, and – it is all interconnected, which is part of it, but I love hearing these oral histories that sometimes you've gone three months before hearing the next chapter or somebody else's perspective. So it's actually one of the great delights to me has been putting together the jigsaw of these times and spaces where these things happen. And, you know, there is a big imprint on the Australian cultural scene from a particular period of time, even like a bit before like the the legacy was there a little bit before that generation. Obviously it was created before that, but for the last 20 or 30 years, like Sydney University, there's been quite a lot of creativity that has come, come out of there. That is it for this best of episode of uh, Willosophy. Thank you for checking it out. If you're interested in any of these um, people we featured today, why not jump back in the feed, have a listen to the episode in full in the Everyone Relax feed, have a flick through and you'll find them all there. Will is doing his biggest live tour ever in 2024 and some tickets are now available. So don't miss out. I'll put a link in the episode description. Uh, Get your tickets early and you can catch Will live. Uh, That's about it. I will catch you next week with more Best of Velocity 2023. Catch you then.